Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode, the Invisibility One of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. I'm Andrew Jacobs. The purpose of the podcast has always been to amplify women's voices. We know women are underrepresented in senior learning development roles, and we're trying to affect that balance by putting women's voices front and centre in the learning and development world. It's about visibility, and to speak to the other side of the coin, invisibility. And we're lucky to have four amazing guests to work through that topic. Our first guest is Joyce Blomet. Joyce is currently a global agile lead for ice cream at Unilever and looking for a new opportunity. She's a mum of two boys and is a yoga teacher and mindfulness coach. Our second guest is Teresa Rose. Teresa is an award-winning learning and performance consultant with over 16 years experience in organisational and people development. Her career has encompassed everything from program design through to large-scale global change and transformation projects. She is also an executive and business coach. Our next guest is Ariel Wynn. Ariel is a master's degree educated marketing professional and author. She spent 10 years in the modelling industry and is a current finalist for Miss Swimsuit British Isles. She's also the UK chairperson for the Women's Network at her current organisation, PM Group. Our final guest is Alison Shea. A fourth-generation educator who couldn't fight her destiny, Alison has held roles in all aspects of learning and talent development, from developing learning products to running custom learning solutions for financial services and a regulator. In addition to speaking at conferences and delivering award-winning workshops, Alison is passionate about volunteering, mentoring and paying it forward. This was recorded in December at the end of last year. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Joyce, Teresa, Ariel and Alison, talking about invisibility. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you, Teresa and Ariel and Joyce, um, to have this conversation about invisibility. It's a topic that I think about a lot um, because I feel like I have spaces where I am invisible and spaces where I'm very visible. And I think about it as, as sort of a tool that humans can use, um, and particularly women, because, you know, sometimes being visible makes us stand out and sometimes it just makes us feel vulnerable. And, um, so I'm, I'm just really excited to be here and talk to you all about it. Yeah. And you, it's, it's really nice to, um, get involved in like this kind of conversation to you saying that invisibility is this kind of tool. It's quite interesting because I think, even to the very simple notes of women walking in kind of more baggy clothes or male clothes at night and that kind of thing to make them feel safer. It's There's a reason that invisibility is a superpower in cartoons and that kind of thing because, like you say, it offers this kind of blanket of safety, especially when you don't really know who you are or what you are or what you're offering. Um but it can be a little bit limiting as well, I think. Um, I know there was reference to the kind of perceived cost of invisibility and it's where's that line of it being this kind of safety net and where's that line of it being detrimental to to who you are and where is best to be invisible and where not to be and that kind of thing. 
Ariel, I think that's a really good point because one of the things that women often face is this sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't thing. I mean, think about what we've been told for years about negotiating our salary, that we're responsible for the fact that we're not paid as much as a man because we don't negotiate. But then we now know from the research, when we negotiate, it doesn't work as well for us and it's actually negative. And I think that there's an aspect with visibility too, where it's sort of like women, I think, often are blamed for being too visible, but then they're also blamed for not being visible in spaces where they're sort of not encouraged to be in. And and so it's, I think that what's so interesting for me and Teresa and Joyce, I don't know if this is something that you've been talking about in your workspaces, but, you know, there's, there's so much to our identities, you know, I mean, obviously, we're, we're women talking about learning, right? So, you know, we're, we're women, but um, but beyond gender, which we gender, we often think of as a visible characteristic, although it's sometimes not that, that cut and dry, but there are so many aspects to our identities that are visible characteristics sometimes and, vis- and invisible characteristics, or there are certainly characteristics that we can, we can show or share or, or not. And, and it's, it's really interesting, I think, as somebody who has multiple characteristics to my identity that I can keep invisible if I want to, or I can bring them to the forefront if I want to. And like, when do I feel safe to do that? And is that is that calculation of safety and calculation of will this help me in this, you know, environment? Am I right about that? Is it coming from fear? Is it coming from practice and knowledge? Or is it coming from, you know, reality? Well, I don't know. That's always that clear. I think that's a very good point, Alison. I think it's it's more about how how rational are we when we do that assessment of safety? Because I think a lot of it stems from fear and also from us filling in the blanks for other people. Because I think, at least in my experience, is that I often... I could make parts of myself invisible thinking that the other person would have an opinion on it. And that opinion would be detrimental for my future career, for instance, whilst that might not be the case. So I, I always wonder how, how rational and how realistic is that assessment that we make? And are we as women the only ones making that assessment? Do men also have that reflection or don't they? And if it's so black and white, if it's so binary, then why do women do it uh, and men don't? That's that's a bit of um, a trigger for me. That's a really good point, Joyce. I'd like to pick up on something that you said, Alison, around negotiating salaries. And it takes me back to discussions when I was um, in a workplace with a female manager and about making myself more visible to get a promotion and that was not used only with with females I saw that used with males as well so going back to to Joyce's point about gender as well so making yourself visible in the organization because if you aren't seen then you might you might not get considered for promotion and it also makes me think as well around 
those gender differences in promotion. So I'd often see as well, oh, well, so-and-so plays golf with them or they do five-a-side football. So often sporting activities where it's more likely that men are there, so they're visible not only in the workplace, they're visible outside of the workplace in social activities related to work that also mean they have greater consideration for promotion or projects that give them even more visibility so it becomes a virtuous um, cycle for them. Yeah, I, I, I get that point. I would like to pick up on that because it's a, I immediately have to think about uh, the book Wolfpack. Um, and it's like it's a book with these, um, I think it's seven or ten rituals um, that women reinvent in the way they lead and in the way they present themselves in organizations. And they're... Um, the ex- or a similar example is given uh, where men play golf together or uh, have beers together, that in a way, women also should find a way to almost create another table, right? Because we've been fighting to get that seat on the table or we've been fighting to elevate the ceiling or, or do all kinds of things. But why don't we create a new building? Why don't we put up our own tables why don't we put ourselves out there and be visible in our own way and with our own rules? Uh, I, I often think about how, why do we want to almost like be flex into the more male organizational structures and try to adapt ourselves in there and, and make ourselves invisible whilst we could just rewrite the whole thing and, and make it more ours instead of only male-centered. But that might be a bit too idealistic. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Joyce, you're making me think of the work of um, Mary Portis, and I've been a long-time fan of hers. And she said, don't lean in. Like, is it Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg recommended? Lean out. Yes. And that aligns really to what you're saying there, is to go and do it do it your way, not have to play the same games, not that we want to play games, the, the games that the guys play is to to lead like a woman and yeah. use the feminine power to make yourself more visible. And that also makes me think of um, a coach. I had another work story here. I remember having to do a professional autobiography. And at the time, I was going through um, – I was in a bad place. I had postnatal depression. So we talk about mm. some of the things that women go through that men don't necessarily experience. And um, – I was writing this autobiography and then I had to speak it out loud in front of two other colleagues and um, a lady who then became my coach, her name's Dr. Dr. Eunice Aquilina and I ended up being in one of her books. Um, she overheard my biography, having seen me um, several times on, on these workshops and she took me to one side and she said, after hearing that, I wouldn't have thought it. I wouldn't have thought that about you. She said, you behave like a mouse when you should be roaring like a lioness. And she said, you can do with that feedback what you like, but I can tell you here and now that if you want me to coach you, I'll coach you. And that took me on probably about a three to five year journey of transformation and making myself more visible. That's really, really interesting, Teresa. Um, I'm thinking a lot about this uh, 
woman who um, she has learning programs. She's got a book called ADHD for smart ass women. Her name's Tracy Atsuka. And, you know, I think when we talk about invisibility, neurodiversity is one of those, you know, often invisible traits. And I say often because sometimes um, for some folks with some behaviors, it, it, crosses over to being readily apparent to people who are, you know, versed, but, but especially for women, we, we have this model of ADHD that is based on certainly in America, that's based on the behavior of men and boys with ADHD, because actually the entire diagnosis, you know, criteria is actually taken from research about men and boys and not about women and girls. So that's kind of a problem. But, you know, anyway, uh, Tracy Atsuka has this really wonderful thing where she says, stop trying to fit in. You're meant to stand out. And that is a trait that, that very much is associated with women with ADHD. And when you look at women with ADHD, they tend to be entrepreneurs. They tend to be star athletes. They tend to be, you know, entertainers. They tend to be people that, you know, that, that you know the names of because they stand out. And so it actually becomes this superpower. But, you know, the majority, whoever's in power, whether it's in a, a company or whether it's in, you know, in the, the world, they get to decide what is the norm, which is one of the reasons why we have things like norms being based on male characteristics as opposed to being, you know, evenly um, kind of collated from, from, you know, both men and women and also non-binary people. But, but I think that that's one of the things too, when we start to think about what normal is when it comes to neurodiversity, it's one of the reasons I object to the term neurodivergent. So, so great. I just really object to that term because, you know, because uh, to be divergent it's not even the same thing to me, and maybe it's just me, but it's not the same thing as being different, right? Different is just different, but divergent means you're diverging from the norm. And I think that if we were to actually look at what we think of as neurodiverse people right now, well, we're all neurodiverse, like our brains are all formulated in different ways. But I think that that's a, that's a characteristic that in learning is still very invisible. I mean, elementary level and and you know primary school level you know in in the state's high school as well they often colleges now too are dealing with like looking at things like ADHD and autism spectrum but how much are we doing that in the corporate learning space and even when we know that certain types of you know ways of operating are really common. For example, like people in sales, there's a high correlation to people in sales, you know, having ADHD. It's one of the superpowers that many sales folks have in some environments. But I think environment plays such a role when we're talking about invisibility being something that is a weakness or a strength. Where are you invisible? What is the what is that environment? It, it's quite interesting, Alison, because you was talking about the um, like moving away from from the norm and and that kind of lean in and lean out type of thing. And I think when coming back to like that point of invisibility, it's quite. I think it can be quite difficult. So I mean, there was a, an article, McKinsey um, and Co, and they they did their Women in the Workplace 2023 article, and it was really interesting because. 
they talked about all the myths as to why women aren't being promoted and things like that in the organization. But fundamentally, all the way through, women were underrepresented. And it goes back to that sort of whether it's it's fear from a women's ownership point of view, whether it's, I mean, I work in a very heavily uh, male-dominated industry and field. Um, my role is he- male, female-dominated, but the actual workplace is very male-dominated. And I think invisibility and that kind of building your own table, that it's so innately... Um, related to accessibility and um, representation so um, I think you tend to feel more invisible or find it more difficult to find that space how do we I mean I uh, we had the women's network at my company and I, I chair it from the UK and it's it's trying to find women women's voices and how they can propel that forward in a space that is often against them in so many ways so it's very easy to kind of draw back into yourself and kind of marginalize yourself to your point Alison and and almost choose to be invisible but whether that's a complete internalized choice or whether that's those external factors that come back to it it's really difficult to find the uh the balance because I do think invisibility is so innately related to um, representation and accessibility if you don't have the leadership roles accessible to you or you don't have the the five-a-side teams or um that like golf and things like that then how do you how do you push forward where do you even begin to start when it feels like the odds are stacked against you I think it's can be exhausting sometimes. Absolutely, and, uh, Ariel. I, oh, sorry, I, I couldn't agree more, Ariel. I, and I, it, it immediately makes me think of an example in in my own career on representation because I I remember the first few years when I worked here, I always thought that I couldn't climb that ladder. Right, I had to be. I was bound to stay in Belgium, right? I was bound to just do Belgian roles because I couldn't get higher. I wanted to be a mom and it felt like an either or thing. Um, and also combined with the fact that I'm gay and I was like, ooh, if I'm going to be a gay woman going into corporate life, that's probably not 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 the, the ideal space. And then at one point there was a gay leader, uh, a female gay leader who had four children. And she inspired me so much. And she, I don't even know if she knows, but she's the absolute reason why I was convinced that I was able to do that. She's the only reason why I had the guts to apply for a global role. Otherwise, I would have never done it. Whilst on paper, I was exactly as good as the male leaders and as the other uh, participants. But if I wouldn't have had that representation and if I wouldn't have had someone just to, to know, to also like open the path and to show that you don't have to be invisible, um, then I would have never gotten where I am. So I, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. I haven't thought about it immediately, but it's, it's a very good point. 
Joyce, I have to say, this is so interesting because this is like exactly this thing that I've been thinking about, right? So um, I refer to myself as a stealth gay. And what that means is that nobody ever looks at me and thinks I'm gay, whether they're in the straight community or the gay community. And um, and it's it means that visibility for me has been a great struggle in my life because it's so hard to not be seen for who you are, yes. right? And and as somebody who identifies as bisexual, and you know, have had you know, I I had a marriage with a man, and I was married to a woman, and and so like you then to be you tend to be viewed by who you are in terms of who you tend to be viewed as as though your identity is based on you know who you're in a relationship with but that's not actually who you are that's just who you're in a relationship with um one thing that's really interesting and this is where i think that environment and invisibility really are in a dance together is that when i'm in a space and i know that people in that space know that i am not straight there's all of this you know sort of like unconscious bias isn't really the right word, mm-hmm. but unconscious like associations with gay women as being more assertive, more powerful, and things like that in many places. And when that's the case, I then speak differently. I hold myself differently because I feel empowered in those spaces. The very same trait about me that when I was working as an elementary school teacher, let me tell you, I did not feel empowered by my identity. I felt, you know, this was many, many, many years ago and the world has changed quite a bit. But but the outside environment can often affect us and help and it shapes what we feel safe to make visible, right? And and we're not always right about that. And I think that that's really really key because I think that, you know, women often get blamed for not putting themselves out there and for being invisible. But if you make yourself visible in a space that is hostile, you're just serving yourself up for slaughter, right? And and I think that the the safety negotiations that women have had to do in the workplace have been um it's not that recent. You know, it, it, sorry, it's not that long ago that the um that the safety issue of a woman in a workplace, you know, it stopped being something that was, that was, um, is something you had to negotiate on a daily basis. And, and, you know, I think that that's something it's, it's easy for us to forget how recent some of these major changes are. And while there, there are more changes that need to be made, you know, invisibility is a tool that women have used for safety whether in learning or in any professional career. So, you know, what's that, what's that old saying? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? Like, I I think that there's, I think that there is danger in pretending that this is all on women to be visible. And if they're visible, they will suddenly be rewarded with the career of their dreams, because that's not true in every place. And, and so I think it's uh, it does a disservice to women to pretend that that's true. And I I really when when Lean In came out, there was a lot that I objected to with it. And uh, Cheryl Sandberg later on, I, I think it was after she lost her husband, she came out and she said, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I thought 
was true for everyone because it was true for me. And it turned out it was true for my circumstance. And, and I think that that was a really great acknowledgement because, because a lot of women were not living in the same world that she was in and they just didn't have the same choices. And to pretend that the only difference was because they were invisible and they could make themselves visible uh, really isn't true. And that doesn't mean that we can't work harder to change the spaces, but it also means that we ne- we need allies to do that as well. I think, like, Alison, that's so, that's so true. Having allies and having people that don't maybe necessarily subscribe to, to the female experience, but they um, still honour the, the troubles that they might go through. And it's like, um, especially in the workplace, I think we do forget that it's still not fixed. Like, um, it would, it, we would love to think that it was fixed, but it, it's not. And then there's, there's racial biases, there's kind of the more marginalized communities within that. And it's, it can be quite scary, but I think having those allies and having people that support and push forward and propel forward helps you to feel safe and be more visible in my um last workplace uh, there was um complications with a, a a man there and um let's say there'd been nicer men I've ever met um but it was a re- it was almost it was quite difficult because it was like I'm visible in that scenario for reasons that I don't want to be visible and that overrides the things that I'm desperately trying to be visible for. So then you kind of silence what you are known for or try to change that. I changed how I was dressing. I changed um, even turning up to the office and that kind of thing to to be more invisible in a certain space that I didn't want to be known for. But it was these people that were almost it felt against against females in general um the the one the things that I was trying to push for I was trying to push for things that I was passionate about my own career my own interests my own creativity that kind of thing and all of that was just being muted so how how much is the onus on me and how much is the onus on women for us to sit there and say what is what do we want to be visible for and how much is how much do we give weight to other people making us visible? Because um, I can, I mean, I change and all that like a chameleon in and out of the office. I'm very different in work as I am outside of work and that kind of thing. And that's all safety. That's all with an objective in mind. But how much is the onus on us to to say we are visible for these reasons? And then it pulls back to that lean in, lean out. Um, kind of conversation uh there was a really interesting book called invisible women um and it talked about even things like men are twice as likely to interrupt women as women are men just because i guess some people think they can um and then it talked about how systematic invisibility actually is and it's like where, where do you go from there? What, what, where do you start? It's like trying to like build a dam with a pedal, pebble. It's it's difficult. Ariel, you're you're you. Ariel, you're making me think as well around um, 
something I read an article in the media. So what, what the media has, has to do with this as well. And it was by, I call them the Daily Fail, the Daily Mail. And <laughs> it was it was probably about in my early 40s. And it said that women become invisible at the age of 47, that um, you know, don't expect to be noticed. Don't expect to have um, you know compliments from men. Don't expect to get noticed at work and all those things. I'm thinking, really? Is that is that what's in store for me? I was, I'm determined. I'm not going to be like that. I'll be looking at like as I'm as I'm I'm like my mid fifties. What what are women like my you know in that older age range? Um, do they still offer up opportunities? So. I would um, seek out and look and see women as role models that were older than me and were still making waves, were still learning, were were still changing careers, were still starting businesses and sought them out as my role models. And also, I'd say, diverse groups of women. So when I look at the dancing that I'm learning, I am probably... 30 plus years older than the majority of the women that are doing the type of dancing I'm doing, but they've welcomed me in. And um, they, as long as I can still do these things and go to the gym and all of those things, I'll still keep doing them. I don't want to be invisible. So I want to make sure that I look after myself and take personal responsibility not to be invisible in any, in any shape or form, if possible, wherever possible. I think that's a really good point, Teresa. Yeah. I, you know, I think it reminds me a lot, like you have these allies essentially in your dance class, right? Where, you know, sometimes the act of allyship is just welcoming people in. And sometimes the act of allyship is clearing space for people. I, I, you know, and I think it's really important too, to make sure that when we're talking about women in the field of learning or, you know, in any field, right? Like that, that it's not a case where, um, where it's, you know, men are doing this and women are doing that. I mean, I once had a, I once had a, a female department head who was doing a lot of the same tricks that we often think of, um, with, with men who are marginalizing women in the workplace. And, um, I had a male boss at the time and I was pregnant and we did not want to tell anybody because of some uncertainty that was occurring in the industry at the time. And, he was the biggest ally and we literally hid my pregnancy until I was eight and a half months pregnant. And then I was working a booth at a conference. And so there was kind of this moment where like I stepped out and I was like, surprise, because we had, um, he would set up the meetings and I would go into the conference room first and I would be seated at the table and he would put a big stack of folders in front of me. I wouldn't stand for the whole meeting. I mean, we just, it was, it was, I mean, it was really actually something you could make a comedy movie out of, but I'm, I'm still great friends with him. And he's one of, um, he's been one of the most influential bosses I ever had in part because there were things that like he, you know, he sort of gave me a talking to on something once and I brought up a bunch of points and he was like, Oh, I never really thought about that. And so we had this ability to um, learn from me the same way I learned a ton from him. And, you know, we're still good friends now. And I tell you, if, if I if I could ever have an opportunity to work with him again, I would go I would go do anything you know, to go do that. But I think it's people like that, regardless of who they are, or why they're an ally. I think it it's, it's something that 
really changes lives. And I, I challenge myself too to make sure that I'm an ally um, to others. And, and, you know, and also like the whole invisibility thing, like it cuts both ways, right? Like there are men who are also struggling with this in a culture, in a workplace. And, and yes, there are places where men have advantages, but there are also aspects to their identity that could put them in a more vulnerable position than I, as a white woman, I'm in, in corporate spaces. So, you know, I just think that it's, um, I think it's not that cut and dry. How do you guys find allies? Um, Alison, you're making me think um, more around that with, with that discussion around allies. And I think it's the um, the traits of allies that, that I'm thinking around. And that is around people that are, are confident in their abilities and, are, and probably visible and don't want you then to be invisible because you might find that some people want you to be invisible because it suits their agenda and they don't want your work or you to be seen. And um, where I've had the best allies and one of my, my um, first managers when I changed into a career of learning and development, and she's still a great friend now, she would remind me, you're here for a reason. You're good at what you do. We chose you because you're good at what you do. And she would give me projects and stretch projects that made me more visible. And um, she then became an informal mentor. And then she became my first client when I started out on my own. Um, and uh, yeah, I think finding people like that is, is key. That's the kind of ally that you want. People that are confident in their abilities and don't want to push you down. They want to lift you up. Exactly that, uh, Teresa. And I think it, it makes me think of servant leadership. It's, it's something that we're working a lot with in the transformation that we're running. And it's something that, you know, throughout the ages, it has always been this top-down kind of leadership, very male-oriented again as well. And if we go to more servant leaders, if we create this new space for leaders to lift others up and to make sure that others can expand their skills and their capabilities, um, then allies are born, but also the need for being invisible or for keeping parts of you invisible um, lessens, I think. Because I feel that the more that you're supported by your leader and the more that you think that your leader has your back, whatever happens, the more you can be yourself and the more you can have that type of fearless organization that, that is that is so often uh, reclaimed. Um, so I think you find allies as women, but allies also find you uh, in a way uh, because they are the people that make you feel safe enough to be your authentic self and then to thrive in that. Um, so And then you, you, you take them along because, you know, they're like little gems that you find and you just <laughs> you just tag them along. Um, I did find your example, Alison, um, quite striking, though, that the line manager that inspired you the most is the line manager that helped you make a big part of yourself invisible for eight and a half months. So that whole idea of almost reversed allyship um, is something I had never thought about. Uh, because in my opinion, if I would hear the story, I would immediately go, oh, but so what you made your part of your femininity and the fact that you're carrying a child invisible, and then that was a good thing. And that's very good for you, but it was, it was a bit of a mental 
exercise mm-hmm. I noticed uh, I had to do. So, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Joyce, I think it's a great point. We don't live in a perfect world, right? And we don't live in a world where the laws that exist for protection are always effective. And so, yeah, it would be awesome if we could just be like, I'm here, I'm pregnant, get used to it. But like, you know, there are industries and there are times in, you know, the course of human events where like, (laughs) that's not the right answer that is best for my family in this moment, right? And so I think that, um, you know, I, I think that that that's something that we have to keep in mind is that that this dance between what we need allyship for doesn't always fall along like like you know perfect world lines right like sometimes it falls along the how are we going to get the best possible outcome for what is needed right now for for me as a human right and i i think yeah so we get back to safety immediately and that was the whole thing that we said in the beginning right Right. because just something just because something is illegal doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to happen i mean that's just a sad reality but you know i think one of the other things too like specifically in learning right where there's there is this dance of invisibility um you know many of the people that we are including in programs that we're running are hiding they're covering some aspect of themselves of their lives of their their work i mean sometimes they're covering something at work maybe they have an abusive boss right maybe they have a boss who's just not good right? Maybe they have a boss who is inappropriate. Maybe they have a boss who's just not effective. Maybe they have a boss who's checked out, or maybe they have an amazing boss and the problem is higher than that, right? And so I think that, you know, when we think about things that are really specific to learning, that's where we we have such a, a power within our organizations because so often we're not just involved in content, Right. We're not just involved in a course, a course, a course, make me a course, but we also are really change makers for cultures in the organization. And we're often so involved in in establishing processes. I think about like performance management, and this is where we really have the ability to change how performance management is being done by how we're teaching people how to do it. And, you know, what are we doing in terms of observable behavior? Because when you want to talk about like invisibility and, and, you know, the, the negative aspects, I mean, think about how many performance management reviews are written about opinions about somebody's supposed motivation, as opposed to like actual observable behavior that is tied to key outcomes or lack thereof. And, and I think that that's where, that's where there could be a whole lot under the surface. That's, that's really not good for organizations. I think learning can play a role in solving for that. Alison, you, you're touching on something there as well, that that's starting to come out because there's this big skills obsession in learning and development and talent development and skills assessments. And some of the data that's starting to come out from that is that women tend to rate themselves on their skills proficiency much lower than men and and that that links in as well to when when women are applying for roles they tend not to apply unless they've got 100 percent of the criteria where men might blag it or think oh i can do that and i and, I, and they'll apply and um i think that's quite interesting that 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 that's coming out because talent decisions promotion decisions opportunity decisions performance ratings etc will start to get 
decided based on that skill proficiency data and is that right that's a really good question we should start asking ourselves in learning and development and talent development and people management are these decisions right how much data are you using because it's not showing the whole person wouldn't it be interesting Teresa, if if once we know the data on what percentage women tend to like you know sort of sandbag themselves what if we boosted all women's scores by that percentage yeah like uh, yeah it's uh, like a like a, a, a deviation figure. Yeah, they're going to like a handicapper going back to golf, like a handicap in golf, but it's not really a handicap. We're, we're, right. we're undervaluing ourselves. Right. So maybe that you get like a boost. Yeah. If you're yeah. Female. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, it would be really interesting to run a little experiment to find out if we... If we if we did something like that, how many women would then go into roles that they actually have the skills for? They just didn't. They just sandbag them themselves from their ratings, and then like, what did they do? Did they shine in that? I don't know. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Yeah, it would. We should do a research piece together, all all four of us. Exactly. <laughs> I do think, however, that it's it is a very valid point because I'm thinking now. Like like I said, my 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 job is gonna end, so I'm now looking at at the, the 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 applications and the different vacancies, and I so often have it that I read something and I go like, yeah, I don't fit a hundred percent, so I better not apply. And now that I hear you say that, I'm like, oh. Oh, so if I would be a man, I would probably apply. <laughs> so maybe I should just run the experiment myself and apply if I have, you know, fifty percent of the skill set and see what happens. So it's actually a good idea. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, Joyce, it's interesting because I so I was raised by radical hippies in New York City right, in the seventies, and so like I grew up thinking things were a certain way that, that I then learned that was not the reality for most people. So for example, I didn't know that men could be doctors until I was five because I had a female pediatrician and my mother had a midwife when she had my sister. And so the first time I saw a male doctor, like in the medical center, I said to my mother, I said, what is he? And she said, he's a doctor. And I said, they let them do that. <laughs> and which I know because when you are five and you say a line like that, it gets told for years in your family. But, but you know, it, it, it seemed ludicrous to me because I'd never heard of that because my mother used to rewrite my sexist children's books and I couldn't read and she would read it to me. And so Susie was the doctor and Tommy was the nurse. And, um, and so that then became this idea for me of, of what was possible and what was not possible. And I think when it comes to like visibility, Right. What are we telling our daughters and sons? What are we telling children from a very young age about what they can be and how do they get there? Are we giving them the message, you know, like, go ahead and try because the worst thing that's going to happen is you'll learn something? Or are we saying, well, you know, just study hard and then maybe one day someone will pick you to do this? Right. Like what how are we empowering, you know, the next generation of learners to like learn that they will be okay if they try and fail, as opposed to telling them to not try until they're sure that they won't fail. It's quite interesting, Alison, because you're talking about um, having not seen a, a male doctor kind of until you were 
to your father. It goes back to that representation point. You had never seen it. So it wasn't something that was possible to you. And it's like, how does that internalize in our like in our children's minds and and younger minds and things like um, representation across uh, different body types and social media and that sort of thing? And I think we we definitely have um, actions moving forward in in our own organisations and our own spaces to make sure that we are we are allies essentially and pushing that forward because I think as much as the owner shouldn't be on women and it should be a collective group and largely as well with, with some um, kind of societal issues, the onus is more so on men, but we do owe it to ourselves, our organisations and the people around us to kind of be that power and be that kind of, um, what was it you said earlier, Teresa, about not being a mouse? Um, yeah, being it, roaring, roaring like a lioness. Exactly. I think like our action is to to roar because to your own point then that goes back completely to representation and there wasn't that so how was it possible and and the same for you Joyce in in response to seeing that um the gay leader and it's like now it's possible so how do we kind of be an arc for that representation and roar essentially exactly I I couldn't agree more Ariel and it really makes me think about my sons that. I think it's up to us as as this generation to make sure that we pave that path for the upcoming generation that when they enter the, the, the marketplace or they enter whatever career they want to enter, that they just feel that it is possible. Everything is possible, independently of who they are, what they do, what is visible and what isn't, that they just roar like tigers. Uh, and that they just take whatever comes their way uh, instead of instead of hesitating, uh, just go there. Yeah, we're all tigers. We're, we're all tigers. tigers. Yeah. <laughs> we're all going to be just the change we want to see, right? That's that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, we should all burst into song to Katy Perry's roar. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we should end this podcast with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. New yeah. jingle. Yeah. Thank you so much for the chat, guys. I feel so in like, I'm like, let's go. Let's go fix the world. This was the final episode we recorded in 2023, and we were, to put it mildly, a little staggered by it. It took us a while to edit because we just kept going back and listening to it. It's the favourite of one of our production team, and quite deservedly so. It was such an interesting conversation that it could have continued for hours if time had allowed You'd never know that two of our speakers were speaking on a podcast and recording on a podcast for the first time. And to get such a diverse panel to speak with such breadth and depth on this topic was just simply amazing. A massive thank you to Joyce, Teresa, Ariel and Alison for their time and the opportunity to listen in to such a fantastic conversation. We recommend you look them up and find their contact details. They're in the show notes, along with links to the website future episodes our donation page and so on you'll also find in the episode a ton of links that we think are relevant and really suitable and appropriate for the conversation we're back in a couple of weeks with another great episode and next time it's the creativity one as always thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon (laughs) 